Let's open our Bibles together now, though, to Esther chapter 4. We are continuing in our study of this strange book, the book of Esther. Esther chapter 4, and once you have found your way there, if you are able, let's stand together in honor of the word of the Lord as we hear now the word of the Lord coming to us from the book of Esther chapter 4 beginning in verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city and cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting. Many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then the king called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him all that had happened to him, the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king and to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and all the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter that he may live. But as for me, I've not been called to come to the king these 30 days. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. Lord, for this good and pure and perfect gift that you have given to us by your spirit, that through your spirits working through your word, that we are called from death to life, transformed from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light, wrought from, from our blindness to seeing you with clear eyes. We pray, God, that your spirit would accomplish all of your good purposes in and through us by your word this morning. And I pray for myself as I proclaim your word, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can be seated. Esther is a strange book. We have said it over and over again. I, I had a glorious text message sent to me on Monday morning of this week. I just want to share my joy with all of you. It was from a mother in the church who said that her boys had fashioned an impaling stick and were taking to the stuffed animals. And I said, just you wait. It gets so much worse in this story. What a glorious benefit of the book of Esther so far in that family. <laughs> what, what makes Esther this strange book where God is never mentioned, where no one prays, where, where it seems to be a completely secular book and everyone behaves pretty badly, what makes it such a glorious book is that it's really a story all about the providence of God, that there's a God who's ruling over all of the affairs of history. If you are a part of this church and you've been here so far as we've studied, I hope ringing loud and clear in your ears as you have thought of this story is how God is ruling over all the events that are taking place as, as each piece of this puzzle falls precisely into the place it needs to fall for this story to play out the way it does. But this isn't just a story. This is Events that really happened, really happened to real people living in a real place at a real time and in Persia around the 480s BC. These are events that took place a long ways away from us, a long time ago in a culture that's very different from our own, and yet 
What we see driving this story is entirely relevant to our lives. These events confront us with a question. How do we live our lives as those who trust in the providence of God? We who believe that there is a God who has made all things and is ruling over all things and is is working together all things to accomplish his purposes of of ultimately uniting all of creation together in Christ, that he he has promised as we learned in our study of the book of Romans, that he's in fact working in all things for our good? How do we, as the people who believe that, respond in our lives when tragedy comes, when conflict comes, when hardship strikes? Conversely, how do we respond when good things, the things we perceive as good things, are happening to us? When opportunities come our way, when, when worldly success comes our way. It's a book that confronts us with questions like, where does human responsibility come into all this? If there's a God ordaining all things, working all things together according to his eternal purposes, what does that mean about our actions and the decisions we make? Are they real? Do they matter? How are we supposed to understand those defining moments of our lives in light of God's sovereignty over all things. Well, in Esther, we're confronted with these questions. And in the book of Esther, where we are right now, God's people have been confronted by the reality of a Persian empire that has now turned on them. They are exiles living, the, the, the characters in, in, in our story, particularly Mordecai and Esther, the Jewish characters, are, are Jewish people living in the capital city of Persia. They should have gone home to Jerusalem some five decades ago, and yet here they are. But now we find the people of God, the Jews, scattered throughout this entire empire, all the Jews on earth, This empire that rules over them, Persia, has now turned on them. They're about to be driven to extinction. An order of genocide has just gone forth. And our situation may not feel that dramatic. Um, In fact, it's it's not that dramatic. We are not under an order of extinction. Uh, We have not been ordered for genocide. But at the heart of it, it's really not so different. What what we have been learning in the book of Esther is that the providence of God, and we will see this as the story plays out, God's providence, his sovereign rule over all that he has made, his orchestrating of all things, it does not relieve us of human responsibility. Not one little bit. And this is essential for us to understand as we talk about these topics. The sovereignty of God does not call for inactivity on our part. It calls for and even motivates activity on our part. So, so far in Esther, this strange story, we, sing, we see King Ahasuerus, and again, that's a, that's a throne name, like, like, uh, like Caesar or like Pharaoh, History, we know him better by by his Greek name, Xerxes, this king. He has hosted a huge party, a six-month-long, six-month party followed by a one-week party, a drunken festival to himself. He's preparing the troops for war to to go invade Greece, which is going to fail embarrassingly miserably. Ultimately, we know, but he doesn't know that yet. He hosts this giant drunken party. He calls for his wife, who's hosting her own party, Vashti, and he says, I want you to come parade yourself around for the the lustful entertainment of these drunken men. And she says, no. He essentially divorces her. He'll never see her again. And he hosts a contest. They take all the beautiful young women from across the entire Persian Empire, maybe a 1,000 women, They gather them together in the king's harem, and he spends one night with each of them. They've prepared for a year for this, these women, in in a spa, beautifying for their one night with the king. And Esther wins the contest, this unholy, wretched, wicked contest. Esther wins it. Esther's cousin, her, her older cousin Mordecai, who is actually now her adoptive father because her family has died, he uncovers a plot to assassinate the king. He, he sends word through Esther 
Esther gives this word to the king in Mordecai's name. The king investigates. The men are executed. But instead of the next verse telling us that Mordecai was honored, it tells us that this man named Haman was honored. Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And part of the way Haman is honored as he has been elevated to the position of of, uh, prime minister, second in command over all the Persian Empire, is whenever you see him coming, you've got to bow down to him, except Mordecai won't do it. Mordecai will not bow down. Haman is incensed at this and decides it's not enough to punish Mordecai. We've got to kill all the Jews across the whole empire. And so they cast lots. The word for that we're told in the story is per to determine the date of the slaughter of all the Jews where it's not just a sin against the Jews. It's a sin against the whole Persian empire. You have to rise up and kill your neighbor. Well, you might not want to slaughter your neighbor. You might like cookouts with them uh, instead. No, you have to kill them and plunder them. And the date is set, but in God's good providence, the date that is set, according to the casting of lots, it's almost a year away. It's 11 months into the future. And so the edict goes out across all the kingdom. We read that at the end of uh, chapter 3, verse 15. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king. The decree was issued in Susa the citadel, and the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. So now as we come into chapter 4, we see Mordecai's response to this edict that has, is spreading through the whole empire rapidly, and in Susa, everybody is already fully aware of it. And we read this in verse 1, that Mordecai learned all that had been done. Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. Now, Mordecai is not making a fashion statement with his clothes here. Sackcloth is a, it's a cheap, scratchy, uncomfortable cloth. It's, it's like burlap. It's literally sackcloth. You wear that close to your skin, and it irritates you constantly. Ashes on the head and on the beard. It's a symbol of destruction. This is common practice in the ancient Near East that, that Mordecai is doing. It's not just Jews who did this. The Persians did this as well. It's a way of externalizing what's going on on the inside. You are filled with grief. You are filled with suffering. And you are doing something on the outside to let everybody know it, to let everybody see it. And even to remind yourself constantly with your uncomfortable clothing grating against your skin. And in the midst of this, as this order goes out to kill, to annihilate, to destroy all the Jews... Mordecai's got to be thinking, it's really my actions that led to this. Everybody's going to die, and it's because I didn't bow down. Maybe he's thinking, I should have just bowed down. Maybe I, I shouldn't have been stubborn. We don't know the reasons Mordecai wouldn't bow down. He told, he told them it's because he's a Jew. We know that the author of this story is pointing us to this generations-long um, animosity between Mordecai's line and Haman's line. But Mordecai has got to be feeling the weight of this, the the weight of this edict that has gone out. And there's no indication that it would have been wrong for him to bow down. It wasn't an act of worship. It was was like saluting. I'm sure some of the people in the military, when the president walks beside them and they have to salute him, aren't really feeling it in their hearts. They're certainly not worshiping him. They just have to do it. It's what you do. In in this case, it had been commanded by the king. So to not do it was insubordination. Here's Mordecai sitting with the weight of this, a death sentence for not only him, but all of his people. It says in verse 2, he went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. So Mordecai can't go in. He works at the king's gate. But he can't actually go into the king's gate wearing sackcloth. The king does not want to see you sad. Don't don't bring that here. Anybody that comes anywhere in my vicinity is going to be only doing things that make me happy and the things that I want. We see this king responding this way all the time. So, no, you can't come in here with your sackcloth on. Verse 3, in every province, wherever the king's commands and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting. 
Many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. So the response of the Jews is, as word spreads its way through this massive empire, as each new, uh, new area is reached with this message in their own language, the Jews are mourning and grieving, just as Mordecai is. It's totally legitimate for the people of God who believe in the sovereignty of God, who believe that everything in our life is designed by him for his good purposes, for his glory, and for our good, who, who believe that God is working in everything for his own perfect purposes to unite all things to himself in Christ Jesus, it is still appropriate for God's people who believe these things to feel and express deep sadness, to go through times of discouragement, to mourn, to inquire of God, to be disappointed, to even have fear. And that ought to be a liberation to us, especially if you have been lied to about this. You've been told, well, a faithful Christian would never feel these things. A faithful Christian one who has faith, one who's in right standing with God, he would never feel discouraged. He would never have fear. He would never feel depression or anxiety. He would just be riding high all the time. How could you not? No, it's, it's appropriate. It's right. It's reasonable for Christians, Bible-believing Christians, those who believe in the sovereignty of God, to feel these things. One commentator calls these times in our lives mournful dispensations of providence. You lose a loved one. You're left to pick up the pieces of your life. You lose your health and you're racked with pain. And you look at the future and you go, it's not going to get any better. It's only going one direction. Your plans fail, and you find yourself in a desperate situation, one that you don't have the answers for. What kind of emotion does God expect from you in that moment? Does he expect giddiness and heel clicks and, and excitement? Even when we believe that God is still in control, that God is still good, it is completely legitimate for us to express a whole range of emotions. I'll give you two examples of this from two guys who, who had right standing with God, whose theology was rock solid. One named Paul, one named Jesus. Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. What does that mean? To be so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Here's what it means. We did not want to be alive anymore. Well, that's our brother Paul. We just spent a couple years studying the book of Romans, and we see in him a man of monumental faith in God. Monumental understanding, far beyond our own, of, of God's might and God's sovereign care for his people. This Paul, who wrote Romans 8, said, We despaired of life itself. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 26, verse 37, says, and taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. This is Jesus. He began to be sorrowful and troubled. So if anyone tells you a Christian cannot be sorrowful and troubled, you can say this word to them. You are a liar. You're a liar. You're preaching a false message. Here's what it says. It's, that's not all it says. Verse 38. And then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. We'll, we'll come back to this passage later because it's important for us to see how Jesus dealt with this. Jesus felt this way. He wasn't lying to them. I am overwhelmed with sorrow to the point, again, like Paul, of death. I could just, I could just lay down and die. How did Jesus respond to that? That's what's essential for us. Not to, not to try and gloss over it and pretend that we're never going to feel that way and heap all kinds of condemnation on ourselves when we do and say, well, something must be wrong with me. No, we look to Christ. How did he deal with that? 
But, but back to Esther. The author of Esther is doing something great here in the language that is used. Fasting and weeping and lamenting. There's, there's one other time these three verbs are used in this exact same construction in the Old Testament. It's in Joel chapter 2. Verse 12, the original hearers of Esther would have recognized this language immediately. In Joel 2, God is declaring that judgment is going to come upon his people. And here's what it says. Joel chapter 2, verse 12. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. And rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave blessing behind him, a grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. And so in Joel chapter 2, God says, In the face of judgment, return to the Lord your God. And I think that the author of Esther is using this language intentionally. He he wants us to see this response of Mordecai, this response of the people, imperfect though they are, and as it is, is a response of repentance. Mordecai here is is spearheading a national call to repentance. A national call of turning to the Lord, of trusting in the living God. And we see in Esther's response, she's not exactly as far down the road with this as Mordecai is. For one thing, she's just hearing of it. Right now, but we read in verse 4 when Esther's young women and her eunuchs came to her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. So Esther, here's what's going on with Mordecai. Hey, your uncle, your adoptive father, or your cousin, your adoptive father, he's outside the gate. He can't even come in. He's in sackcloth. He's crying really loud. He's making a whole situation out of this. Everybody's looking at him, everybody's talking about him. And Esther responds sincerely but cluelessly to the situation. She feels very bad for him. I'm sure she feels embarrassed for herself. She's clueless to what's really going on because she's completely isolated from the rest of the world. She's in the king's harem. She's in a good situation. She's in a spa. She's in a situation that probably every other woman on the face of the earth would trade places with her in a heartbeat. And she is totally disconnected from what's really going on in the world. Mordecai is not having a wardrobe problem. That's what Esther thinks. He needs some nice clothes and he needs to settle down. That's not the heart of what's going on here. Verse 5, Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who'd been appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Esther doesn't know about the edict. She has no idea what is really going on. It's clear from this that Esther and Mordecai have not been in very close contact during this time. There's been some distance between them, close as they had been during this period of time. She has been queen. Verse 6, Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him all that had happened to him. The exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king and beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. This is our, our first indication of this. Her people. To plead with him, Mordecai says to Hathak, Esther needs to go to the king and plead with him on behalf of her people. Well, who knows at this point that they're her people? The answer is nobody, just Esther and Mordecai. So Mordecai here has has told Hathak, this, this eunuch charged to care for Esther, he has now told the secret. Esther's a Jew. Hathak might be a Jew himself, some commentators speculate. But at any rate, Mordecai has just let the cat out of the bag on this. Verse 9, Hathak went to Esther, told her what Mordecai had said. When Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, all the king's servants, the people of the king's provinces, know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except to one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he might live. But as for me, I have not been called to come to the king these 30 days. 
So Mordecai drops this bombshell news on Esther. It says, all of the Jews are scheduled. There is a date set for our extermination, for the complete genocide of our whole, of our whole line. And you're the only one who can do anything about it. You've got to go to the king. And you've got to tell the king. And Esther's response is, you've got to be kidding me. You know better than this. You know that I'm not the one to do this. You know that I can't do this. Nobody knows I'm a Jew because you told me to keep that a secret. She basically sends word back to Mordecai and says, it's easy for you to say that I should go into the king, that I should do this. There's really two major problems with what Mordecai is asking Esther to do. The first is a legal problem. She says, all the king's servants know. In other words... Mordecai, you know this. You, you should know this. You cannot approach the king unbidden or you will die. So her first motivation is just self-preservation. They're going to kill me if I just barge into the king's presence. This isn't, she's not just making excuses. This is true. This is how this king operated. Her only hope is that if she did go into his presence, the king would extend his golden scepter. He, he would extend the scepter. The person would touch the tip of the scepter, and that was the indication that he was going to spare their lives, grant them access to himself, and grant them their lives, which they had forfeited by barging into his presence. Josephus, the Jewish historian, said around his, that's King Xerxes, around his throne stood men with axes, to punish anyone who approached his throne without being summoned. So he had men ready to kill you if you barged into his presence and they were ready to, to kill you right on the spot. That's this king. His throne, it was kind of like the DMV. You wait 45 minutes and then the person you encounter is menacing at best. That, that's the situation here with Xerxes. We're, there's men, we're here. Look, we're going to kill you with this axe right here if you come b before me. There were seven men in Xerxes' court. They were called the king's friends. They were the only ones in the whole empire that could come before the king without being summoned. No one else could. That included his wives. No one else could come before the king. If you wanted to come before the king, you had to get permission. You had to get permission from the supreme commander. The supreme commander alone, this one man, would decide who got in to see the king and who didn't get in to see the king. Who had just been named supreme commander, second in charge, prime minister, a certain Haman, the enemy of the Jews, the one whose wicked plot this was to exterminate all the Jews. So if Esther is going to see the king, in order to say this is a wicked plot, you've been deceived, the only way she can do it is if Haman gives her permission to do it. She cannot appeal. She cannot go through the proper channels. She has to just barge in. That is the only way she will get any access to the king. And it's about a 50-50 shot. You're going to get killed if you do it. And that would include Esther. About a 50-50 chance if, if Esther the queen barges in that she'll die. For other people, it's a much higher chance that they're going to die. Esther's probably got 50% odds. It's the first problem. It's the legal problem. Second is a personal problem. I've not been called to come to the king in these 30 days. The king has lost interest in her. Let's, let's not forget the king hosts this giant contest with a thousand women, perhaps, brings them into his harem, and then he chooses Esther. Esther's one night with the king. She wins him over. She wins the contest. She has been made the queen. And then we read this. When the king gathered the virgins a second time. Well, they weren't virgins anymore. They'd spent the night with the king. It's just a way of saying these are the same ladies from earlier in the story. But he gathered them again to keep them. He didn't get rid of them. He kept these women. And so here's Esther, who had won his favor and was made his queen. But, but we know this of this king, historically. He was a depraved and vile man. 
Again, this is the same king we, we spoke about in, in our first week studying this book, who after his failed campaign in Greece, stayed at his brother's house and attempted to seduce his brother's wife. And when she rejected his advances, he tortured her to death and tortured his own brother to death because she would not sleep with him. This is the guy. He's not a one-woman man. It turns out a massive sex contest is not the best way to find a godly spouse. Who would have ever dreamed? But that's what we see here in this story. It does not build a steady, faithful, long-lasting marriage. And so Esther is taking all of this into account. She says it to Mordecai and she goes, I'm not your guy. I'm not the one to do this. I'm surely not the person. I can't play the beauty card. Esther, who maybe she's the most beautiful woman on earth. Who knows? But you can get used to anything. And the king's used to her. I can't play the queen card. We saw how well that worked for Vashti. He immediately deposed her and never saw her again. Stripped her of her title of queen. So Esther's in trouble. If she doesn't go to the king, the edict is going to be carried out. And someone is going to expose her as a Jew at this point. There's some hint in Mordecai's speech to her that, like, I, I might be the one to expose you. But they're going to know she's a Jew. If she does go to the king... She's not only asking the king to help her people, she is admitting to the king that she has deceived him all this time. Esther's secret that she's a Jew is going to be a profound embarrassment to King Ahasuerus. He has just ordered the death. How embarrassing is this for the king? You have just ordered the extermination of your wife's entire people. Because you didn't even know. How could you not have known? You didn't know. I mean, you, Mordecai's the one who wouldn't bow down, and so that's why all the Jews have to die. And you know Mordecai's her adoptive father and her cousin, and yet you're stupid enough to not even put those pieces together. That's how this king is always presented in this book. He is a bumbling fool. He can never put any of the pieces together. He is always being deceived. He is always being manipulated. He never knows what he's doing. He's going to look like an idiot, though. When Esther reveals to him that she's a Jew and it's her people that he has just signed the death warrant for, this is not a man to let himself be humiliated in public. We saw that with the way he responded when his wife just simply wouldn't come to his party. So Esther is trapped in what seems like a hopeless situation. She's in a desperate place. If she barges into the king, it's about a 50% chance she's going to get killed on the spot. Once she tells him the news, those odds have to go up because she's humiliated him. But if she doesn't do it, there's a 100% chance she's going to die. And Mordecai is going to make that clear, as we'll see when we resume this uh, story, the rest of this chapter. Mordecai is going to make it clear, you're dead if you don't do it. We're all dead. So Esther and the Jews. Esther, Mordecai, every Jew on earth is in a desperate Situation. This is a defining moment, though, for, for Esther. Esther has to decide who she really is. Up to this point in the story, even as we've read so far, Esther's not a real likable character. She's a beautiful young woman who compromises everything. She shouldn't have been in Susa in the first place. She should have been in Jerusalem, but we'll blame that on Mordecai and give her a pass on that. But she for sure shouldn't have entered into this contest and done the things it took to win the contest. And above that, she shouldn't have even wanted to win the contest and be married to a pagan king against the commands of God. She shouldn't have covered up her Jewishness, which meant disobeying God's dietary instructions, commands, meant disobeying God's command to observe the Sabbath. Esther so far is not that likable. And now when confronted with this, her first response is, no, I can't, I won't. I can't be the one to do it. This is a defining moment. And it's moments like this that, it's these defining moments, it's these hard times that reveal people's character. But it doesn't just reveal our character, it defines who we are. 
We're defined by what we do in these crucial moments, in defining moments. Defining moments like hearing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The truth is, your life will never be the same because you're sitting right here in this room right now. That is the reality. You, you, you will either draw closer to God or you will harden your heart. But not a one of us leaves here the same way we came in. We will either have drawn near to the Lord or we will have hardened our hearts because of sin. So this brings us to the question that is, is confusing for so many, and I, I trust for, for some of you as well. How can we believe in divine sovereignty? How can we believe in, in the providence of God that, that is, is orchestrating and ruling over all things to bring about his good purposes? How can we believe on that in the one hand and human responsibility on the other? Aren't these two notions completely incompatible? If God's always going to accomplish his eternal purposes, do our decisions matter? If God is going to accomplish his eternal purposes, why on earth do we pray? What do our prayers matter? Why does it matter if we do or if we don't? More troubling yet, the more we think about it, we start to get into questions like, am I elect? Am I one of God's chosen people? What does my sin mean? When I look at my life and I see all the times I've been unfaithful, all the times I sin, I see those patterns of sin in my life, those things I keep returning to. Does that just mean I'm not in? Does it just mean I'm not saved? These philosophical questions have led many to believe that the sovereignty of God on the one hand and human responsibility on the other hand are completely incompatible. There really is, like with all things, a ditch on both sides of the road. There's a, a ditch on the one side of the road. I would say it's the much bigger ditch that more, more cars have gone into. It's what most of us were taught. It's what some of you still believe. And it's this, God's not really sovereign. God's not really sovereign. And the reason God can't be sovereign is because we must have libertarian free will. So God cannot be, only one of us can be sovereign. There can only be one sovereign. And it's got to be us. Can't be him. Now you might not say it in those words, but if you follow your thinking to the end of the line, that is the thought. And I could, I could tell you the names of churches in our community who actively teach that. That the sovereignty of God is one of the most abhorrent false teachings in all of Christianity. And I would just say, if you hear that, it's a great moment in the service to run out screaming. What a blasphemous thing to say. But the question is, either God is free to do whatever God wants to do, however God wants to do it, whenever he wants to do it, and he never has to ask anyone's permission, or I must be free to do whatever I want to do, however I want to do it, whenever I want to do it, and I never have to ask anyone's permission. Those two things. And so that's the ditch on one side of the road that just says, God can't really be sovereign. But the other ditch on the other side of the road is this. It doesn't matter what we do because God's sovereign. God's sovereign. And so we don't even, our choices don't matter. We don't have any freedom. We don't make any choices. We don't need to pray. We don't need to evangelize. We don't need to share the gospel. God will take care of that. He has his people. God's just going to do what he wants. So nothing we do matters. And it really and it really doesn't matter. But here's what we need to understand. Both of those errors are driven by human philosophy. They are driven by human reason. They are not driven by scripture. You don't come to either one of those conclusions by a straight reading of God's word. You have to import something. You have to put a pair of glasses on before you pick up your Bible and read the, the Bible through those lenses to come to either one of those conclusions. So my friends, we need to start with the Bible not human reason. We need to start with the Bible and not philosophy. It's one of the reasons that we read a lot of the Bible in this church. 
It's the word of God that is our authority. That's why we stand. We don't do it by empty ritual when we read the word of God. We are physically reminding ourselves that we stand under the authority of the word of God alone. Scripture holds these two truths in tension. God is meticulously sovereign on the one hand. Literally, nothing happens unless he has ordained it. And on the other hand, humans are absolutely responsible for their actions. Our choices matter. We see this tension in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 27. It's a great example of this. Luke is, is account, recounting Paul's journey to Rome. And he describes a shipwreck that, that took place on the way to Rome. And just two verses I want to draw our attention to. Flip over with me. I want you to see it with your eyes here in Acts 27. Acts chapter 27. We're only reading a couple verses, but I want you to be able to see them. In Acts chapter 27, Paul is going to be telling the sailors on the ship, those that are on the ship with him, that he has received a message from an angel. Okay, so it's a message, it's a message from God. God, through an angel, has spoken a message to Paul, and Paul is going to tell them what it is that God has said. And so look to verse 22. Look to verse 22. This is, is before the shipwreck has taken place, but the, they're in the storm. It's looking imminent. Here's the message Paul received from God. Actually, we'll start in verse 21. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. I'm sure they were all ready to hear that from him at that moment. You should have listened. <laughs> Verse 22, Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only the ship. Okay, here's the word from God. God has sovereignly ordained something. There will be how much loss of life? None. Only the ship is going to be lost. None of them are going to die because God told Paul that none of them were going to die. What does it mean if any of them die about God? Only two options, wrong or liar. So how many of them are going to die? None of them are going to die, right? But look at verse 31. Verse 31, the, the, the sailors now, Paul has made this statement, but the sailors are like, we got some lifeboats and we are getting off of this ship that is surely going to sink, will surely cost us our lives if we stay on. They want to escape secretly. Paul says to Julian, the, the Roman centurion in, in charge of Paul's, Paul being transported as a prisoner, in charge of his transport to Rome, and he says this in verse 31, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Now here's these twin truths. Divine sovereignty on the one hand, human responsibility on the other. Is Paul contradicting himself? Well, we better say no. We better say no to that. Paul is not contradicting himself. Here are the truths. No one on that ship is going to die. Why? Because God has decreed it, and God is not wrong, and God is not a liar. Truth number two, if you don't stay on this ship and run it aground on the island of Malta, you're going to die. These are two truths from the mouth of Paul in a very short span of space in our Bibles. How can both things be true? God says, not a one of you is going to die, and also, if you do this, you're going to die. So if you do this and die, what does it mean about God? Just to backtrack. Then he was wrong in the first case. Or he was being untrue in the first case. We know that's not true. So how can this be? Well, the answer is actually pretty simple. The answer is this. God ordains the, not just the ends, God ordains the means. 
He ordained those passengers were going to be saved through the crew's ability to steer the ship and run it aground. God's sovereignty did not remove the sailors' responsibility. It established and affirmed their responsibility. Paul says, not a one of you is going to die. And here's how you're not going to die. You're going to stay on this ship. We're going to run it aground. If you get on that boat, you're going to die. God's not a liar. God was not wrong. God works through means. The means by which God was going to keep his word there was keeping those sailors on the ship. God works through instruments. He often uses human instruments. He wouldn't have to. He wouldn't have to have done that. God could have plucked that little boat up out of the water and set it on the shore. Look, none of you died. I kept my word. That's not what God did. God used the proclamation of Paul to save the men on that ship. His warning of what would happen if they didn't do it. Even though God had already decided and even said, I'm going to save all of you. They still needed the warning. That warning was a means by which God worked to spare them and to keep them. God does not need to work through human instruments to accomplish his good pleasure. He could do it just by saying the word, like he did in Genesis chapter 1, let there be light and there was light. Before he made the sun, let there be light and there was light. But most often God works indirectly by by secondary causes. The the warning from the Apostle Paul, the, the promise and the warning is what God used to save the lives of all those men. The law and the gospel is what is the means God has chosen to work through, to save those whom he has chosen from before the foundation of the world to be his. There's no contradiction here. God set the sun in the heavens to give light to the earth, but he could just as easily have illuminated the earth Directly from his own glory. What what do we see in the new heavens and the new earth? Revelation chapter 21. What's going to be the situation? There is no need for a sun in the new heavens and the new earth. The glory of God will be its light. God didn't need to work by means of the sun. He chose to work by means of the sun. That is how God most often chooses to work in this world. Through means. That is how he's chosen to order the universe. And that's why we're responsible to do as he commands. Even if we know he's utterly sovereign, even if we know his will can't be thwarted, even if we know he is working out his good purposes, the the belief that God wills something should be a powerful motivator to us. Why do we share the gospel? Because God has chosen to work through those means to save those whom he's chosen before the foundation of the world. Well, who are those people? Well, I guess if we knew, we'd only preach to them, but we don't know. Spurgeon was once criticized on this very thing. Someone saying, these two things don't work together. You believe in the absolute sovereignty of God, and yet you preach the gospel so freely to all. And Spurgeon said, I guess if God painted a stripe on the back of the people he has chosen for salvation, I'd spend my days lifting shirts and only preaching to them. But since he hasn't seen fit to do that, I preach to all. We don't know the secret will of God. We know what we're commanded to do. And we do so in the confidence that God actually works through that. He works through our prayers. Why do we pray if God's sovereign? We pray because God's sovereign. Pray because our prayers matter. We pray because we're commanded to, but we pray because the effective prayers of the righteous avail much. Why do we preach the gospel? Because... God has appointed some for salvation. And the gospel is the power of God for salvation. The sovereignty of God is not a reason to fold our hands and say, God's going to do it whether we do something or don't do something. No, it's a reason to say we must act. God has chosen to work through us. What a blessed privilege that is. If you understand the principle that God in his sovereignty normally accomplishes his plans through the use of ordinary 
means it will clear away most of the confusion. This tension that we feel between the sovereignty of God and human responsibility, that God in his sovereignty normally accomplishes those sovereign plans through ordinary means, like us, like our prayers, like our actions, like our words. These twin truths, the the sovereignty, the providence of God, and human responsibility. They are twin truths. They are not at war with one another. God has designed these things to to work together. It's what we see happening all over the book of Esther. So understanding it not only helps us clear up our confusion on some of these matters that we get up in our head about instead of just trusting God and taking him at his word, it also helps us know how to live like Christians. Helps us to know how to respond when we face defining moments in our life, when we face times of trial, when we face times of suffering, when we face times of pain. Jesus, in a defining moment, a moment of deep pain and suffering, here's how he responded. Matthew chapter 26, coming back to that that we read earlier, verse 36, Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to the disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. Taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Going a little further, he fell on his face, praying and said, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. How did Jesus respond In this defining moment, this moment of pain, profound pain and suffering, where he felt sorrowful and troubled even to death. Two things. First, he poured out his heart to his Father. This wasn't just the sovereign God who rules over all things. This was his Father. This is our Father. Going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, Father, my Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. We, we have in these moments that something we'd love to see happen. I don't want to go through this. I don't want to hurt the way I hurt. Second, though, he rested his soul in the sovereign wisdom of God. He made his requests known, reminded himself of who God was, And he said, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Those who who actively teach against the sovereignty of God hate this kind of prayer. It's a faithless prayer. We don't come to God as this. Some Some of these word of faith teachers will say that explicitly. We don't pray this way. We we make our we we make our demands to God. We, we command, we speak into existence. That's not what we see with Christ. Resting in God's sovereign wisdom is not a passive thing. It's an active thing. We fill our minds with truth. Meditating on the truth. Preaching the gospel to ourselves every minute of the day. Surrounding ourselves with people who are going to do the same. We're going to speak words of truth to us from the word of God. Not tell us what we want to hear. Not give to us some kind of vain and empty philosophy. Fill our minds with truth. We pray urgently. We pray for our desires. We, We pray that we would trust God's perfect will and his goodness. We pray both of these things. We fix our eyes on God. We fix our eyes on eternity. We fix our eyes on his revealed will. We we don't know the secret will of God. But we know his revealed will and that is enough. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. God's already told us everything that is essential that we need. Let me just bring us to to a close. I know you're thinking that those words should have been spoken about 10 minutes ago. I understand. i got to drive to North Carolina right after this. First is this. I I, I hope that we're encouraged as we look at it. Even Esther's response here. I hope it just takes a little pressure off your shoulders. It's not all riding on you. 
and your ability to respond perfectly at every moment of every day to every trial that you're facing. Esther does not immediately hear this news and go, I will do it. Come what may. I'm in. I'm the one. How does she respond? Oh, I'm not doing that. There's no way I'm doing that. Why would we be encouraged by that? Well, because if you're honest, I think you can see yourself in Esther's gut reaction to this situation. Our gut reaction to things is generally not perfect. Most of us aren't eager to put our lives on the line. Most of us aren't eager to put our comfort on the line. Or even our reputation. Or even our popularity. Most of us blow it a lot. Isn't it encouraging that God uses faint-hearted people like Esther? What's the name of this book? This character hasn't even spoken until this passage we just read in this book. She has done nothing. She has been, she has been the object of action in the book so far. Hasn't done anything herself. And this book's called Esther because God uses people like Esther. He doesn't set her aside. He doesn't pass her up. God uses cowardly people to, to a, achieve his purposes. He even uses sinful people like Mordecai, like Esther, like us. As the Puritans would say, God uses crooked sticks to make straight lines. I'm encouraged by that. The second is this. The king who bids us to come to him is nothing like Ahasuerus was. Nothing. You go to the White House, you stand at the fence outside the White House, and I can remember being a kid, standing there looking, is the president in there? Do we think he's in there right now? We don't know for sure if he's in there. He's definitely not coming out to us. We don't get to go into him. We don't approach him. And some people think of God like that. God is unapproachable, this, this unattainable, unreachable aloof God, but God is not like that. Our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who spoke all things to existence, the one who rules over all things, the one who even now is putting his enemies under his feet. He stepped out of his throne. He stepped down into time. He stood in the streets, accessible to the masses. And he says this to us, Matthew 11, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lonely in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the king who bids us come. I want to just close with these encouraging words I read this week from Twitter, which almost never has encouraging words. From a brother named Owen Strand, he said this, Christian, it's not so much that you are headed towards heaven, trudging there by yourself. It is more like heaven is rushing towards you. The Father opening his arms to you. The angels cheering you. The saints waiting for you. The slain and resurrected Son of God smiling at you. When you get to glory, the, God, the Father is not going to shame you, avoid your gaze, or tell you how disappointed he is in you. The Father is going to enfold you in the greatest embrace you have ever known, in love, he's going to look you in the eye and welcome you home. This is the king who bids us come. So Christian, trust. Trust him. Trust in God's sovereign faithfulness and act. Even though you're faint-hearted, even though you're fearful, even though you don't understand Act knowing that your actions matter. That what you do for the Lord is not in vain. To all of us, the message is this. Come to this king. Come to this king. Come bow before him now. Come accept his mercy. Come accept his grace. Come and trust in him. He bids us come. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your sovereign might and rule. Lord, you who are far beyond anything we could conceive of, you who are holy, you who are just, 
you who are a righteousness, you who will not abide sin. It is you who have made a way for us in your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to come to you because of his sinless life, because of his perfection, because of his death in our place, bearing our condemnation, because of his resurrection from the dead. We rejoice in you, our God. We rejoice in your great salvation. I pray, Lord, that you would fill your people with confidence in you, with trust in you that goes beyond our mere human understanding, but that that looks to you and rests in you. And I pray, God, that you would cause us to be bold, to be bold in faithfulness, to be bold in faithful living and in obedience to you, to be bold ambassadors for your gospel in this dark and dying world. We pray, Lord, that we would be those means through which you work to accomplish your good purposes in this world. We thank you for your kindness to us in Christ. We pray, Lord, that that he would be glorified in us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen.